You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome, Welcome to, to episode, episode 53 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living our life in ruins. I'm your host, Carl Tegover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, David Ian Howe and Connor John. And today, in uh, Just the Boys episode, we are going to be tackling the pre-Clovis and Clovis debate, or explanations for the initial occupation of the Americas by homo sapiens sapiens so we have a list of emphasis on homo sapiens sapiens by the way yes emphasis emphasis nothing nothing else no surrogate no settlers of surrogate here uh, (laughs) for this one are you guys finally agreeing on it's homo sapiens sapiens because you guys were there was beef it's always been Homo sapiens sapiens, but the debate was, is it Homo sapiens neanderthalensis or Homo neanderthalensis? Oh, okay, okay, okay. All know if you are a Homo <laughs> sapiens sapien with a fully functioning evolved brain, you know it is Homo sapiens neanderthalensis. Only uh, someone with Neanderthal DNA would call it Homo neanderthalensis. 2.2% percent you... <laughs> Point proven! <human>. Point proven! <laughs> so... Okay. We're not we're talking not about paleo after this episode. Yeah, we're yeah, moving aside from that. <laughs> so, really, we're going to talk about pre-Clovis and Clovis here in the North American, and I guess South American too, archaeological record. The three of us all got our master's at University of Wyoming, a rather prolific paleo-Indian department, hunter-gatherer department, I would say. Wouldn't, wouldn't you guys agree? Very much so. Very, very heavy in that. You know, we have some of the, the big players in the game, you know, Todd Cerevelle, Bob Kelly, who are, you know, interested in this time period. And there's also a, a, a like a ton of archaeology sites, Paleo-Indian sites in Wyoming that are actually studied at the University of Wyoming. So it's we were exposed to this stuff very early on in our graduate career. And it's kind of I don't know if it's shaped your guys's view on this stuff, but it's certainly brought to light a bunch of issues yeah, and don't forget the late great George Frizen, as well as uh, you know Doctor Doctor Cornfell and Doctor Larson who do the Hell Gap, which has that is like a Cody complex, right? Do they have a Clovis component? I know I work there, but I know it goes deep. I just don't know how deep. I don't think it. There's a Clovis point from Hell Gap, right? Uh, it's Paleo Indian. I don't know. If Definitely. It's Clovis, but oh. hang on, guys. It's um, hello. Oh, what's up, National Geographic? <laughs> oh, it's Homo sapiens Neanderthalensis. I, you see, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Thank you, National Geographic, for calling me and telling me this in the middle of a podcast. I love you too. Bye. I was about to get so mad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Anyways, <laughs> thank you, thank you for that, David. Thank um, National I, Geographic. <laughs> yep, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that was them. So this whole. God darn you, David. Um, <laughs> this whole topic about man's antiquity in the United States stems from the Enlightenment period, right? And particularly in the 1800s, there West were s- some projectile points found in like, it was like a French river, right? With some Pleistocene animals. A French river? Yeah. So the whole like conversation about the antiquity of man globally. Oh, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
there's like a, I forget what what river it was in France, but this whole debate got kicked off by them finding a bunch of projectile points in extinct megafauna from Europe, and for a long time, the question of how long man has been in the Americas was um, pondered because they hadn't found anything like that. But that all changed, didn't it, boys? Yeah, it did. One could yeah. say. <laughs> so the important site in this is the the Folsom site in Folsom, New Mexico, which I hear is not the greatest town, but it's worth visiting at some point if you're down there. And it was also discovered. I'm, I'm not completely clear. It was also completely clear exactly how it went. But George McJunkins, who was a he was a freed slave, right? was eventually one of the the first founders of what we know as like the first Folsom point in embedded in a Pleistocene megafauna. So it's 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 kind of a cool story and it really you know it he he did some important stuff for the field. But I think that's 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 all I got on it. Any any other details that I'm missing? Was there someone before him that found projectile points with a mammoth that confirmed the antiquity first and then he was the first one to say that they they lived with, no, because that's right. George McJohn was the one that confirmed that people were here during the Ice Age. Yeah. Maybe I yeah. didn't think of the French thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So McJunkin was a freedman, um, cowboy, working working property outside of Folsom, New Mexico. And out of an eroding arroyo, he noticed that there were some bones that looked a little way too big to be cow bones. So we checked them out. Turned out to be an extinct species of Pleistocene bison. And uh, he contacted archaeologists from, I think, from Denver, the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, I believe. Because yeah. that Folsom Point is at the History Colorado, the State Historic Museum. And they came down, and there's that really famous photograph of a Folsom Point in C2 in between these two bison ribs. And that was like, okay, there's the evidence that man's been here. And then later on, outside of Clovis, New Mexico, that's where they found the Clovis point, and which was older, older than Folsom. And just to just to give so, it a time period, so this is like this is in 1908 when they when he first discovers this. So early, early 20th century. I can't do math. Yeah, 1908, yeah, like before World War One. Yeah. yeah. So this is like super early on in archaeology, and we as a discipline in America. I don't even think we were a discipline in reality. Very much antiquarian still. Yeah. So not a professional field quite yet, right? Yeah. We had like history and I believe we had like archaeology, but it was like you went to Greece and Rome and did all that crap, you know, and you were at Harvard and you were like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) and like. That's what archaeology was until then. Then, like, you know, literally found by a cowboy. And then the rest of the time it was like, let's go pitch a tent in the middle of the woods and just dig some holes in the ground and find some rocks. And then that's kind of what we're doing now. Change the game. Yeah, 100%. Totally changed the game. And with that, Blackwater Draw, New Mexico, is somewhere in there as well. It is a place. It is. I don't know. It's like, it's basically the Texas border. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's the that's the actual site it was at. It's it's outside of Folsom, New Mexico. And the locality is called oh, Blackwater Draw. That might be it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. We might if we get hate mail, so be it. But um, stuff and is Clovis <laughs> is about like thirteen thousand years ago. That's how that's the time frame for Clovis. Uh, like thirteen five, thirteen two, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's constantly being like changed and and modified challenge and yeah, challenge article that was like clovis was only around for 250 years like i don't know about that yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh so i got 1300 to 11 sorry 13,000 <laughs> to 11,000 bp and clovis was found at blackwater that's where clovis was found was blackwater oh, okay Drop. okay gotcha okay. gotcha yeah that makes, so, yeah. That makes sense right we know what we're talking about Ex- yeah, exactly we have degrees and from this there stems this theory this this idea that this the clovis people were the first people in americas and they they come into america in these this small little time period where there's an ice free corridor between the laurentide and cordilleran ice sheets and cordilleran and uh in alaska that kind of area so this is and this is kind of the accepted theory you know starting from there on out yeah and and the big question is like okay if there's people here in the ice age how'd they get here and that was kind of like the big like debate for a long time and especially those early sites clovis Folsom, those are all in like new mexico right we're not finding these early sites early on in the beginning of the 20th century on the west coast on the east coast and as connor was talking about this ice-free corridor because around let's see like from the Beringian shoreline, which is the landmass that connected eastern Siberia with Alaska, that was rather substantial. Like it extended, I believe, like from the north of the current coast of Siberia out upwards of like 400 miles, completely connected. But the problem was for a long time that um, Pleistocene ice sheet before the and I'm, if I'm on if you're watching the video, I'm using my hands before the uh, Laurentide and Cordillerian separated. I mean, you're talking about Game of Thrones ice wall height of glaciers like they're upwards of a mile high. You're not climbing them. And if you do, there's nothing up there. I should have thrown you from the top of the wall, boy. <laughs> exactly. Do you guys know who first thought about the land bridge theory? Actually, I don't. Jose de Acosta. He was a Franciscan monk or a friar, I think, in uh, New Spain, um, or Spanish missionary. And yeah, he was like looking at a map and everyone was like, you know, how do these people get here? Like where are all these Mayans coming from? Where are these Aztecs coming from? And he looked at the map and he was like, oh, see Alaska and Russia, they're pretty close. You know, I mean, it wasn't Alaska at the time, but like maybe they just, you know, walked or, you know, floated across that little gap there. And that's kind of where it came from. Interesting. And like, yeah. And, and it, it's possible to cross it. I think there was a recent paper. We should have that person on that showed um, there were Italian glass beads in Inuit communities in Alaska. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Prior to European colonization in the South because they had traveled along the Silk Road and got to Inuit communities in eastern Russia and they were trading them with their relatives across the strait. Really? Yeah, dude. It's nuts. It's pretty sick. So it's possible. We got the evidence. That's what we got. So, yeah, this ice-free corridor, the ice-free corridor didn't open up. And here's 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 there's a distinction we got to make. When does it open up and when is it livable? Because even after there's no ice there, there's nothing else, it probably looks like a lot like Hoth, right? There's nothing in there except for some giant grizzly bears hiding around. And as it's melting, there's just water and it's just like this muddy, disgusting mess. Like, how do you actually traverse in between two glaciers that are actively melting? So it looks on the sides, it's like tauntauns and in the sum- 
I guess in the winter it's like Hoth and there's Tauntauns and Wampas and all that stuff. And then, you know, in the summer when things start to melt, it's just disgusting. I, I don't know if you've ever been. And it's still cold. Yeah. And it's just still, still just cold and miserable. Well, the <laughs> idea just... though is right that they were following like herd animals and like following bison and horses and mammoth and all that into the corridor. So if you're an efficient big game hunter, like you were in Siberia coming across here, if you got a mammoth, you got a nice dry, you know, hut to build and, you know, can you make skin tents and things like that? And, and you can make your way down the corridor and you got plenty of food to eat. But like the question, like you guys are asking is like, you know, how livable is that? Cause you still got to find water. You still got to find some other stuff to subside on the besides just meat though. They could have just been eating meat. I don't know. It's a lot to consider. But I mean, it, it just makes sense though, right? You're following herd animals. This corridor opens up. They're looking for the food. They're going to go south. You just follow them. I don't know why people are like, it's just a stupid idea. It's like, no, it's pretty logical. I don't know. <laughs> well, and then kind of like future like uh, research has shown that, that the opening occurred right before Clovis people really show up in America. So it's not like they're just like, oh, of course, it's empty in this point. And then the people showed up. Now there's like actual evidence suggesting that the ice-free corridor started to open, uh, melt right before the Clovis folks really show up in America. So it, it's and yeah. it, it's hard to argue against that as coincidence in reality. Yeah. And there's yeah. been like pollen analysis because even if it's open, right, you know, as, as Dave was talking about, that corridor is several thousand miles long. And in order to follow the big game, they need to eat something, which is a lot of grass. So there's like pollen research that's been done, pollen pollen residue, pollen samples. So even though it was open, it took a while for the grasses to resettle to allow the big game animals to eat. But that still happens prior to Clovis populations showing up in the like interior of the U.S., right? Because we're still talking about sites on like the Southwest Great Plains, really nothing on the West Coast. And and we'll get into this in, in the later segment. The sites that we do have on the East Coast, uh, we're going we're to talk about those, such as Meadowcraft, Cactus Hill, and Topper. I, I mean, this, this idea of Clovis people being related to the Ice Free Corridor, I think largely checks out. I mean, you guys would agree. Yeah, it's just the only reason it doesn't check out is because people are looking for every little cherry picked argument to say that it doesn't check out. And like, I'll see people on Reddit or like social media be like, is it the Bering Land theory outdated and like er, er, incorrect? And it's like, it's not that it's incorrect. It's just that there are also other pathways people could come that wasn't just the corridor. They could have come down in boats too. That doesn't make the other one incorrect, which just tells me that you don't want it to be correct. And like, drives me up the wall. <laughs> well, I think, and, but I think initially when it's this Clovis first theory is coming out, they're, they're proponents of like, it's only Clovis first and there's nothing else. And then there's this like, and this is informal and it, it's what people call it. It's just like Clovis mafia that goes around and kind of promotes it and doesn't really accept anything besides, you know, this kind of theory. But I, I don't know if that's still today or I think there's this more of acceptance that there could be possible 
multiple migrations into America's the Americas in reality. We don't prefer Clovis Mafia, or I should say they don't prefer Clovis Mafia. <laughs> David just Clovis outed himself. <laughs> organized crime family. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> don't, it's not Mafia, all right? Excellent. And so these other hypotheses, real quick, and then, yeah, David, jump on in. Like these other, so we have Ice Free Corridor, and the other ones that we're going to talk about in this episode, you have uh, Salutrian, maritime route or coastal highway also kelp highway and there's also this like oceanic one um polynesian uh, colonization and we'll get to those like later in this episode yeah david um i was gonna say if if you're curious to know like what we're talking about and you want to get a picture but the best way to describe this is honestly the the movie ice age the beginning of it like as the credits roll all those big herd animals are leaving Presumably Europe going into the Americas or, or vice versa. And like they're all migrating somewhere because the weather's changing. And then the people in the, the humans in the story are like Pleistocene hunters, which I think are presumed to be indigenous Americans or Siberians. It's just, you know, the way they look and the tools that they use. But I always thought that was like awesome. And like it kind of goes off that theory. But those animals that are walking in are definitely North American animals walking through the corridor. And I thought that was a really cool touch in the movie. Yeah. And as and as animals yeah. are walking in, there's animals walking out like horses are peace. Yeah, they're they're from they're from North America, but they go the opposite way into into Europe. So there's there's it, you know, camels there's an well. exchange. There's a highway mm-hmm. camels antelope. Right. Because like pronghorn in the U.S. are related to gazelles in Africa. Pronghorn's closest living relative is the giraffe, actually. Um, well, I was wrong. And on yeah, that note, but, we will be back. <laughs> Antelope Capra Day is like there. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, that's why they got those little things on their head. Like giraffes have those little like antenna looking things. Okay. It's just a giant long neck pronghorn. I'll oh, never unsee that. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, we'll be right back with our conversation about Clovis and pre-Clovis uh, here in, in segment two of episode 53. Welcome back to episode 53 of Life in Ruins podcast. We are here chatting about pre-Clovis, Clovis, Clovis organized syndicates, as you will see. Uh, so we we kind of introduced allegedly. the... Allegedly. Allegedly. They're nothing proven. We talked about these two other theories, at least mentioned them in the previous segment, the, the Salutrian hypothesis, uh, the Maritime hypothesis, and then also the... Uh, Polynesian kind of hypothesis. So after Clovis is discovered and it's, there's not a lot of pre Clovis stuff that really is proven after those discoveries. And then you kind of get these series of sites that are discovered that have dates that might push the boundaries of, of Clovis stuff. And on the Salutrian side, kind of this East coast idea, you have, you know, Meadowcroft, Topper, Galt, Cactus Hill. And the theory behind all these like kind of Paleo-Indian, this the Salutrian hypothesis is that these points, projectile points in, in France really match or are similarly napped to what is discovered at Meadowcroft, yeah, Topper, and things like that. Yeah, but those points, so that's that's I wouldn't say match though. for sure. Let's, yeah. let's, let's yeah. get out of here. Yeah, let's yeah. let's let's put an asterisk on that one. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, the 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 Clovis sites are known as Clovis sites because you find Clovis points and a lot of times butchered animals, flakes, and you find people start finding what they call pre-Clovis, but there's no diagnostic points. There's no really butchered animals. They just look like shatter. 
which we we talk about in the um, Saruti episode. And then you start getting sites like Meadowcroft, Cactus Hill, and Topper. And I think those are like 60s, 70s. Those are being excavated. And this ties into what Connor talked about, Salutrian, which is really promoted by Dennis Stanford, who got his master's at the University of Wyoming. Bruce Bradley. I don't know where he got his degrees from. Somewhere else that was like legit, like a, a prestigious place. Um, yeah. He's a cool and, guy. I like him a yeah. lot. Yeah, they're nice people. Well, and, you know, rest in peace, Dennis Stanford. They work for the Smithsonian. And they have this idea that Salutrian points and Clovis are really similar. But if you actually look at a Clovis point, which is fluted and has those little like like earlobes at the bottom. Ears? Ears, yeah. They got ears on them and they're fluted. But you look at a, a Salutrian point, not only are they from a like completely different part of Europe, not really f- northern France. There, there's like a separation in time, like solution points, like what, like 20,000 years, 30,000 years. You don't get Clovis until like 12,000 years ago in the Americas. They're not fluted. They don't have those ears. They don't look really similar. And the solution points appear to be like really decorative. So there uh, really isn't a match. Salutrian, if you're, if you, the audience listening, if you want a good example of that, the movie Alpha, that's Salutrian culture. They make Salutrian points there. And well, and they, they so, good. and there's also this thing where the Salutrian technology that they find in Europe disappears around like 17,000 years ago. It really just kind of goes away. So it's, it's a little circumstantial and <laughs> how they're right. it's, approaching it. It's kind of like, um, like what Cumberland is to Clovis, you know, like it's, it's like a regionally distinct area. Cause it, uh, what do you call it? Salutrian is just a form of Gravettian. It's like a like the bigger Gravettian cultural complex of Europe at that time. And then Salutrian are like the people that distinctly lived in France and made those points that way. But like, yes, it just kind of fades out of, you know, popularity or whatever. The theory being that they like got up and left and they kind of skirted uh, along the, the ice sheets and hunted some in, mammoth. In the Atlantic, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Not mammoth. Allegedly. Um, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> so they, they hunted, uh, you know, uh, sea mammals and kind of skirted along this, allegedly. Allegedly. They floated on the ice sheet across from France to Delaware by hunting seals and laying on the ice sheet at night, making a camp out of their boats turned upside down with oil fires on the inside. Love the idea. The execution is much to be desired, guys. Like, let me see you do it, and then we'll talk about droves of people leaving France, coming to Delaware to use some Old Bay on their mammoths. <laughs> old Bay all day, baby. I, I love Old Bay. <laughs> Come at me, guys. Like, I, it's just, it's an absurd idea. Bruce and, like, I love the idea of comparing the technologies, right? Like, you got those those barbed points you find in Japan that also correlate with the ones that are in the Channel Islands in California, which might support the Kelp Highway hypothesis. But, you know, that one makes a little more sense. Yeah, there's Just some coast. that out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there, yeah there's, exactly. There's some there's coast. Like, there's land. <laughs> this one is like they're purely surviving on ice, and it's like, all right, okay. But, like, you get sites like Meadowcroft, and I'm, I'm familiar with Meadowcroft. It was excavated by um, – Adavazio, Dr. Adavazio 
at the time he was working at the University of Pittsburgh. And the guy that got me into archaeology, Dr. David Clark, who's a professor in anthropology at Catholic, he was his grad student. He'd, apparently the story is like out of audio, just busted in the lab. is like, got a site, let's go dig it. And that's how David Clark got involved. And he brought us out to Meadowcroft. And there's a couple things about Meadowcroft, fellas. It's never been published. So this was done like in the 70s. Audubadio, really? he's just never published on it. He's sitting on that material. It's in coal country. <laughs> it's in, you know, it's in Pennsylvania. So like they're dating charcoal. That's interesting. The, the, but the thing with Meadowcroft is if you look at it, the way that the the rock has collapsed, it, it does kind of, it, it'd be really hard to get charcoal you know it's it looks like tetris almost to get that level but he's never published on it. every time they redate the material it gets younger and younger so we really can't talk much about metal crop and once again there's no nothing diagnosticable the diagnostic so there aren't points there's just some interesting looking shatter which could be naturally formed right but metal yeah. crop i think now stands they claim nineteen thousand years ago so seventeen hundred or seventeen thousand BCE. They have a really gorgeous interpretive center though. Like you go to their website. The site is really cool. Yeah, yeah, they have a historic village. They have outlatal days. Like it's like they have a woodland village up there. It's like really cool to visit, to be honest. And they also have some like frontier day stuff like seventeen seventies. Like it's a really cool like the rock cool. shelter itself is cool. Like it, it's a cool looking place. Yeah. Never been. I've just seen a virtual tour online and they they do have a really good virtual tour if you just Google Metacroft Rock Shelter. It, that's a cool looking thing. Mm -hmm. But it gets brought into that whole Salutrian argument. Yeah. And that was, I think that was one of the first ones to really, to be discovered and kind of grouped in there from what I kind of generally remember. But then there's other sites like um, David's pretty familiar with Topper. I am. You've you been there. I've been there. Dug a few holes there. Drank some <laughs> swamp water. Some swamp water. Yeah. Some um, swamp water. Had some great times there. My formative years of archaeology, hanging out, made me fall in love with archaeology. Is there 50,000-year-old flakes down there in the Pleistocene Terrace? Who's to say? Is there an overwhelming amount of Clovis artifacts on the Clovis level at 13,000 to 11,000 years old, uh, scattering the entire site in its entirety? I can say, yes, there are. Have I personally stuck an auger down the middle of a uh, the bottom of the Clovis fuller, down another meter, and pulled something out and not found anything in it? I can say there's nothing in it. But in this one spot where there's this <laughs> giant pit excavation, it's a beautiful looking excavation with a big like built you know like ceiling on it and everything, kind of like Hellgap has. They think that there are fifty thousand year old bend breaks down in there, and a dissertation came out and proved that it's probably just. You know, ice can shatter things just as easily in half like that. 50,000 no, years ago? 50,000 years ago. And to put that into perspective, people only got to Australia 40,000 years ago. So they would have had to have booked it from <laughs> all the way to us, like bypass that, gone all the way up through Siberia or wherever, you know, down the coast or whatever, all the way to the Georgia, South Carolina border. I don't think that's the thing. If you're on a mission, man, come on. I could, I could if you're down. on a mission, but you would have had to have, like, you know, been walking through, you know, like Iran and been like, you know what? Really, really want to book it to Allendale, South Carolina. Let's just go. And like made it the whole way, made boats, a strategic plan, 
rolled down the map, blitzkrieged it to South Carolina. <laughs> really, guys? I don't think so. Allegedly, it's about the old bay. They they created old <laughs> they bay. They want the old. They want <laughs> they that want creole. The they want they want those blue crabs, man. They were there for a blue crab bake. <laughs> I, I love Al. He's a great man. Al Goodyear. But he, he's the one who runs Topper. Um, he's retired now. Topper's kind of retired itself. But I don't think that it is a 50,000-year-old site. I think 13 to 11, and I think 11 is the date we usually get. It's 11 or 10, I can't recall. But I've personally picked out a Clovis point there myself. It was broken in half, and it was fluted. And I can tell that that person who did that was like, ah, and threw it. But yeah, the, the rest of it there, I don't, it was deep. I don't think so. Well, it was Dean. And guys, I, if you're listening, uh, go back to that one episode where we talk about Dean. It's just Ralph Wiggum and the archaeological record. But also, <laughs> I don't mean to say that like I'm claiming authority that like I know what's best for this site. Like I've literally, like I'm saying, put an auger through, <laughs> I think two units I did. or I did one myself, saw another one go through all the way down to the bottom, past the Clovis level, and every 10 inches down or however a bucket of an auger is, is like, what, 10, 12 inches? I think it's 10 inches. 10 centimeters. There you go. Nothing. Nothing in it. I remember being like, void. <laughs> and we just like wrote on the map. Nothing down there. Uh, the rest of it could maybe from the river, because it is on the river, that, you know, rivers are known to flood uh, and move stuff around. But anyway, that's my soapbox on that. Let's move on to uh, Cactus Hill. I know nothing about it. I don't know much about it either. I think Crabo worked there. He worked at Paisley Caves. I know that, but I think he did do something at Cactus Hill, though. Mm. Or knows about it. Maybe. All right, let's skip Cactus Hill. Let's go to Paige Ladson. Well, they're, but like kind of connected with that is that like you guys know about the like the Chesapeake Mastodon. That's the one that was the Salutrian thing, right? Yeah, that's the yeah. one where they dredged a Mastodon out of the Chesapeake looking for blue crabs, I imagine. To put old bay on. <laughs> oh. And uh, pulled out like a Mastodon skull, and there was like an, an undiagnostic knife found with it. And then they dated the Mastodon, it was like 22,000 years. And there's like this geologist hit up Stanford and like, ah, oh, look, yes, it matches with Meadowcroft, Cactus Hill, and Topper. You know, this, this proves it. And it's like, nah, fam. I don't like, I don't know much about like underwater archaeology, but like, or that whole process. But it's at the bottom of the Chesapeake Bay, and I don't know how close that knife was found in C2. When you're sucking it in a dredge machine, like a, you're literally pulling out of a vacuum and then shooting it into like a bin, like pumping stuff from the ground in, through a tube into a bin to collect it and sift the water out. There's no context. Yeah, I you, wonder what the, the carbon nitrogen ratios are, right? Like the isotope ratios, because if it's been under underwater for so long, there has to be some funny business going on with the isotopes. So I'd be like really curious to see if they redated it today, if it would pass under modern like chronometric standards. Yeah. That's above my pay grade. I don't know. Yeah. So if anyone does that, let it let us know. And um, for all those who also uh, very much enjoy Old Bay, please uh, send us a review. <laughs> Sponsor- Welcome Sponsored to Black Rose Podcast, brought to you by Old Bay. I think, and and kind of going on with this underwater archaeology thing, uh, Paige Ladson is an underwater archaeology site which has dates to fourteen where fourteen is it? five. It's in it's it's in Florida, right off of Florida. Florida. It's in a yeah. It's in a sinkhole in some river, the Big Bend region, wherever that is. And I, I think we, I would love to have uh, Jesse Halligan on the show to to talk about this. I know her and Shane are really good friends and i 
you know, because this is this is being studied right now and this might be something that kind of bears fruit eventually. I mean, it seems like their dates are are solid and how it fits into everything. We can't, I don't think we can write off Paige Ladson right now because it's still actively being studied and we'll see what, what happens. But I think the bigger problem with this Solutrian hypothesis is really what people are using it to say. What ultimately coming out of this the solution hypothesis is this idea that Europeans were the first people to colonize America. And there are some racial connotations and issues with current native Americans and things like that, that people have really taken to another almost into like a white supremacy kind of thing that Europeans are the only people, you know, we're here in America first. So all native um, people here. Yeah, yeah. And Allegedly. And here's the thing, though. People 20,000 years ago in Europe, they weren't white. <laughs> weren't white at all. So, theory, theory ousted. Next. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was that simple, though. Yeah. But it, I wish it was that simple, though. You know, it's, but it's, it's just, it's taken. So, it's like this great idea, like, okay, maybe there's this connection between Europe and America, and maybe people came here early, but... It's just taken this whole racial connotation thing that, I don't know, Carlton, how do you, I assume that. Would, would that wasn't his intent, right? Yeah, like, you know, that's not what, like Dennis Stanford and Bruce Bradley aren't saying here, like, you know, white power, like we got here from France. Like, that's not, they're, they're just trying to look at human migrations. They're not talking about race or skin color. And like, as David said, there's people living in, is this Mesolithic Europe? Uh, Paleolithic still. Paleolithic 20,000 years ago. They're not white. We haven't had the, you know, Indo thing happen yet, that expansion. So go ahead. Let them chant, Europeans got to America first. But show them what the picture, get a Tori Mazda to draw it up. <laughs> show them what people look like then. They'll be like, what? Oh, natives got here first. <laughs> we should have, we should have a Tory drop a piece of them entering the Chesapeake, the, these like brown Europeans with Salutrian points and Old Bay seasoning in their other hand, like at the shore. That's the episode placard. Pray, praying to a blue, blue crab. But like, you know, as the, the dangerous thing about it is if you go, I, I don't suggest you go to this site, take it from me, the official White Pride Worldwide website says <laughs> link in the bio. <laughs> <laughs> no, no links. You'll be on a watch list. It says move over First Nations. You have it wrong. The very latest DNA research is now proven conclusively that DNA lineage probably found in Europe got to the Great Lakes at least 15,000 years ago, possibly earlier, several thousand years before Indians made across the Bering Strait. Whites were the first Americans after all. And they talk about Salutrian. However, none of that DNA research that they talk about is valid. And the Salutrian, of course, is highly problematic. And even if it was, they're not white. Control F for Jews on that side. Let me see what they got to say about me. And on that note, we're uh, going to end the segment. And, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll catch you in segment three where we're talking episode 53, pre-Clovis, Clovis, and we'll catch you in the next segment. Welcome back to episode 53 of a Life Remembrance podcast. This is segment three. We are talking about Clovis, pre-Clovis, everything surrounding that. You've been hearing some top-tier journalism, if you don't mind me saying myself. Yeah, so let's get on to the rest. Absolutely. So 
Salutrine outright, you guys can take this to the bank and cash this in. We'll 100% support you. Salutrine is not, not legit. There's no DNA evidence that supports it. The material evidence doesn't support it. The sites themselves are Mickey Mouse Clubhouse kind of stuff. They're fun to read, but uh, that's about it. And uh, you can email me if you disagree, and uh, I don't care. But, yep. <laughs> However, continuing on this, like, Clovis is established. We know Clovis is established. We have the material remains. And there were still people looking for, like, pre-Clovis. You have, like, the Galt site and Deborah Friedkin out in Texas. Once again, no diagnostic materials. It's just a bunch of wonky-looking flakes. Is it legit? Probably not. Now, is a organization that excavated them, the like first Americans organization, I think they are. Like their whole goal is to find the earliest stuff. Center for the study of the first Americans. Yeah. Texas. Are, are, they, are they biased? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know those people. If you do, reach out. We'd love to have you on the show. I know some AM people. They're good people. Really? Yeah, I uh, bet. A lot I like all archaeologists. Some just I just don't agree with professionally. Uh, others I would uh I don't agree with ethically or morally, but that's a different day. Uh, did I say you guys, when I went out to, to A&M to visit for my PhD, they were like, well, you're from Wyoming? And I was like, yeah. They were like, I thought there was like this beef between Wyoming and A&M. And I was like, I, I didn't know there was beef. And they're like, oh, there's definitely beef. You're the first Wyoming person to be here. And I was like, looked around and I was like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> you're like, oh, okay. No. There was, a, I, I, this, this is relevant. The first winter I was back from Wyoming, back in Northern Virginia, I was on Tinder as one does when you're uh, outside of Laramie and you actually have a Tinder pool above five. And I matched with one of Ian Hodder's graduate students. Oh. Yeah. And we were matching back and forth. Like, yeah, we're both archaeologists. Like, yeah, my advisor is Ian Hodder. And I was like, oh, well, my advisor is Bob Kelly. It's like, like Robert Kelly from like the University of Wyoming. I was like, yeah. She's like, oh. She reported you? Yeah, I'm busy. And then like <laughs> just cut the match. And I, I texted Crave. I was like, you want to get this, man? Yeah. And so I, <laughs> I don't know about that, but. Uh, I got it. So, okay. So. Monteverde, so, Chile. Yeah. Monteverde, which is, I think, one of the more interesting like pre-Clovis sites. It, nah. it's, oh, piss off. The, the, okay, so it's you know, it's a it's a solid like stratigraphic site that has dates. I'm, I'm not sure what the uh, the initial the the uh, highest level dates are, but it goes from back to apparently thirty three thousand years before present. Uh, I think it's it's it, and it's yeah, it's in Chile. It's in the you know the bottom of South America. So it's it's kind of this interesting site in that it appears to be very old and is also very far from where we know humans originally came from. And this isn't allegedly, you know, from from Asia um, down into the Americas. So I don't know. I think I think and we can talk about but this the thirty three thousand year stuff isn't diagnostic, but like the diagnostic stuff, the wooden tent pegs, the Macedon hide, the stone tools which are which are diagnostic the El Yobo projectile points those all come from a around 14,800 year old occupation like that's the one that people stick with not the 33,000 year one and that's well dated are they and, actually tent stakes though think about it though cuz you have you ha post whatever they are you have all of these old pre-clovis and clovis sites where there's no organics 
no organics ever found. And it's just like chipstone points and like some shatter. And then this place is like, we got seaweed and we have tent steaks. And Old Bay. And like, I I don't know about that, man. I think the site, it's cool, right? And they got that little medicine bundle, but like, is it a medicine bundle? Who's to say? Carlton might be able to say. I didn't know there was a medicine bundle, but no. The Mastodon hide, though, the processed Mastodon hide, I'll take tent pegs because even Clovis sites have, you know, um, radiocarbon dated post holes. I think I I think it's legit. I and that whole thing goes with that that kelp highway coastal migration and the reason why we don't find sites even in between like the sea the sea levels rose 120 meters at the end of the Pleistocene. So all the early sites even on the east west coast, you know, they're underwater now, but this Monteverde site is up is it, I don't think it's a cave, but it's in higher elevation. It's inland. It's not on the coast. But it's yeah. like closer to the coast than you know yeah. Topper is. It's on a it's but on a bay. This was like the first you know? possibly confirmed pre Clovis. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this one diagnostics. Yeah, there's there's stone tools in that and in that seaweed stuff like that and cordage as well. So I it's not just seaweed and you know post post holes or whatever. You know, so there's a, there's a little bit more Ten containers with red tops. <laughs> Get out of here. Dude, the old bag tin can is like, <laughs> like I'm just saying. I it's can't iconic. believe this is like, this, if you're, I, if, this is the old bag episode you're from of the Mid Atlantic. <laughs> you know about old bag. <laughs> I know old bag, dude. I think it's a cool idea. And I think, yes, the kelp highway hypothesis, which we should talk about here, it does lead me to believe that that is a possibility. But I just know there's a lot of criticism to it that's like valid. And there's also criticism that's like against that criticism that like is also valid. So I don't personally know. It's just such a one-off site all the way down there. That's like has these organics, but like, do they? But the El Yobo point at Monte Verde looks awfully similar to the bone projectile point found in the Manus Mastodon kill in what is it? Washington state. And that's 13,800 years ago, also along the West coast. And it's all these that same projectile point typology is being found all across early sites that are all dating to around fourteen thousand and above thirteen five. How you spell El Yobo? The West Coast, uh, J O B O. Oh, okay. And they're all found on the West Coast, and they're all diagnostic. Now that people are looking there, like that pool of people that are pre Clovis is getting much larger. Like I think the last debates that were in Albuquerque. I think I'm pretty sure Bob Kelly was present. I didn't see it, but I know the pool of Clovis first is getting smaller, much smaller. Yeah, yeah. But then, then, not at Wyoming though. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Well, and the the, the El Yobo points are kind of like generally like grouped into this like Western stem, right? Which is supposed to be like this early non-Clovis projectile point technology that occurs along the coast at Harper's Ferry. I think I, I could be wrong, but some of the Channel Island stuff, I think, has similar sort of projectile points. Yep. You know, and I think the dating is obviously the problem. But there's there is a, a stone tool technology that's a little bit different that occurs in kind of this Oregon, Washington, California area. Nevada, maybe Alaska. Too, that, Alaska yeah. as well. That looks a little different. David's rolling his eyes, but, yeah. you know. I think I like based on I lean towards Monteverde being real, um, but I am not fully convinced. 
if that makes sense. Like I, I'm, I'm open to it. Okay. I just like, I I'd have to hold the tent stakes in my hand. and be like, okay, these are tent stakes. You know, like, I don't, I don't know. It just seems. You think that'd be me, an, but like, be an, it is a cool sight. Would that be an intense experience? <laughs> Carl just really liked that one. I love, I love right. that joke. Moving Camp on. Is intense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we got to talk about the Kelp Highway. So the Kelp Highway hypothesis by John Erlinson, 2007, I believe is the year. I could be wrong there. 2005, 2007. And um, this is the idea that instead of coming through the corridor, maybe they did come through the corridor as well later that people were coming down through boats along the coast. And if you do the paleoecology, there is an extended kelp forest that literally reaches from northern Japan all the way up through the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia, going up through there to the Aleutian Islands, which is that big like you know island chain south of Alaska, and then all the way down the Pacific towards mid-Mexico. You have a kelp forest. So this would have been the similar environment for people to eat the same foods, the same animals are going to live there, just, you know, varying in climates. Uh, so mostly seals, fish, kelp, got all your nutrients. Uh, and there's also similar points that it's not confirmed, but they look very similar in Japan and they look very similar in Ch- Channel Islands in California. Now, do they look similar because they were the same people? Probably not, but they have a similar function, probably something to do with hunting seals. And you want something that's barbed to keep a hold of the seal when you're pulling it, you know? So... I think that's a valid, we can't say it's not valid, you know, cause like people clearly were probably coming in boats, but yeah, the boats people do, that's how people flooded. got to Australia, right? Like, yeah, we're not talking about like Polynesian, the huge rafts boat, like the, like the vessels they had, like you can easily have a small, a small boat and you can follow the coast. Like unlike Salutrian where you're following ice, mm-hmm. the coast still exists. Like those ice sheets are not covering the West coast completely they allow for a little pocket of um, land that you can travel. But they, the big thing is, if you look at the distribution of the glaciers in North America and the, and the mountain ranges, there's like a separation between where the people on the coast could go. And like, if you're, as David said, on the kelp highway, you have, it's highly diverse in uh, food materials. Like, you can have a very caloric dense diet, like even up to historic times, uh, Tlingit, Inuit people on the West Coast, like they could fish all day and be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have to farm. Like you don't, why would you leave that? And it also explains how you get from, you know, like Manus to Monte Verde really quickly because you could just follow the coast and just camp every night on the shore, you know? So it it makes sense from like logistically, right? Like in terms of, you, this is possible. Yeah, I think I, think, I, I like it. I think that's my favorite. Yeah, you go, Connor. Sorry. No, I was just saying. I think that's, and I think as as we go further in archaeology, as we research more on the coast, I think we're going to find more sites that are going to be underwater, maybe that are going to date to this period and and possibly you know confirm this stuff because it's it's just. Yeah, like you said, it's it's the most legit. And we had, I think David was there at the University of Wyoming. We had John Erlinson come talk and kind of give his outline for it. And I would, you know, and even Todd Cervell, who's pretty much, you know, the Clovis organized crime syndicate. I don't think he's the 
the top boss, but he's, you know, allegedly, a, allegedly, sorry, allegedly. He's a Don. He's a Don. <laughs> yeah. No, he's just, he's he, allegedly he, a Don. <laughs> no, I think, yeah, he invited just looking milk boy or paper boy, whatever they call him. I'm in no. waste management. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I think, but I, I think even Todd, you know, I think it's an, it's a, it's a super compelling argument. I don't think Todd was convinced ultimately, but it's, it's, it's a really solid argument and very possible. Yeah. And I don't think there has to be like one migration, right? They're probably, right, we're talking, probably talking about multiples. I don't think the there's pre Clovis east of the Rockies. Like fundamentally, I think Clovis people came through the ice free corridor. And I think there is a, a component that's along the coast that just happens to arrive there quicker. And they're probably coming from two different people. You're talking about if you look at the map of Siberia, people going through the ice free corridor are coming from northern Siberia where and the people coming from the maritime route, they're along the coast of China, like as David said, Japan and and the and the East China Sea. So they're probably two groups of people coming in different ways. You have the fishermen and then you have um primarily terrestrial hunters. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's what it is. And like my my big piece that I always tell people when they ask me on ethno and stuff is like, do you think Clovis first? And I'm like, well, I am Clovis first in the sense that I am in an organized crime syndicate. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, I'm Clovis <laughs> first in the sense that Clovis is the first widespread ubiquitous culture across the continent. No doubt. 100%. They use the same tools. They make their tools the same way. They live the same way, migrate the same way and hunt food the same way. However, that does not mean that there weren't a few people coming in the boats couple hundred to maybe a thousand, maybe thousands of years before. But that doesn't mean, and I want to say this again, that wasn't in droves. That was like a few, few small people. Like what they were saying were coming across uh, the, the ice corridor or the, uh, the ice sheets from France. No, I think it's way more likely that small people were coming, not little people, but like, <laughs> people. like little statured people, like little amounts of people were yeah. coming they through. They were little people. <laughs> yeah, were coming down the coast. And, he, and, and even the Clovis happening. people, right? We're not talking about thousands. Like even population estimates for Clovis are in the hundreds and lower thousands. Right. You know, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people coming here. The people that colonized North and South America, you're talking about like a, a few thousand. So even if it was like a couple dozen on the West Coast or maybe it may be a couple hundred, you know, there's reasons why when there is huge court cases on human remains like Kennewick Man or the ancient one, they show relationships to the Ainu and the West and the West Coast. And if you look at West Coast peoples, they have higher genetic affinity to East Asian populations, and some of the other ones have more Siberian. Would you look at that? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Would you look at that? That's crazy. You know, people aren't throughout time and space across the globe. You know, people are people. They begat with other people. And you you have mixed ancestry regardless, but there's no European or and there's no there's you know there's definitely no Indo-European coming in. All the genetics points to Siberian or East Asian. So Salutrian's out, and I think like we didn't even touch about it, but a tiny little smidgen, maybe a couple people got lost on their way out of Australia, ended up in South America. Did not like a colonization effect, but maybe got lost. There's a little bit. I'd highly recommend you guys looking that out because it's really minute. It's a new um, paper that came out too, yeah. But I mean, yeah. that's always been pushed around. And if they got to Easter Island, they also could have gotten a little further to, you know, the coast. And I think there is some evidence of like chicken bones being somewhere, but I think that's been disproven uh, in South America. I can't remember. 
it's gonna be a small it's gonna be a small amount fam for me yeah it's, it's like gonna a, be a small not, amount dog they're not like there's not armadas coming across right. the kelp highway or or from polynesia it's just like i just don't think humans were organized in that way or we're doing that stuff go with the genetic flow and yep. the genetic flow points to east asian northern siberian peoples and would you look at that don't indigenous americans and siberian peoples look pretty similar whoa especially inuit people like i mean they're, they're the closest to those asian populations like you look like you said they're trading with each other <laughs> they're trading like it's trading lots so, of things and, it, and they're yeah but i think and on, if you look at their oral traditions right like something something that i like, i find fascinating like Pawnees, we don't, and Rickeras and Wichita's, we don't have like a coastal migration route. We have essentially an ice-free corridor situation talking about mountains of ice and and this land of dark. Whereas other tribes do talk about a coastal. They can't, they followed the coast. So ask the tribes. They have oral traditions about these things. And that, you know. I think, I think, I don't know, yeah, food, food I think it's a good place, good place to end it. That, you know, that's, that's where we're at. You know, coasts, it's definitely West Coast. East Coast is out categorically yeah no he's ghost there is no organized crime syndicate to be heard of you don't know anything about it it's the first but if you're curious please contact robert l (laughs) kelly at the university of wyoming (laughs) allegedly i i played the fifth we are in debitage waste management (laughs) <laughs> the first exactly. rule of the exactly. Clovis Mafia is so, that you don't talk about the Clovis Mafia. <laughs> don't talk about it. You just don't talk about it. So, um, yeah, you know, we're, we're really excited. We've got some pretty good feedback about the, these Just the Boys topics. We plan on talking more topics like this, uh, covering different archaeological components where it's just us and our goofiness. Guys, uh, a lot of you have been reaching out to me on Ethno, actually telling me that you enjoy the podcast and stuff awesome i love that uh if you do listen to it and you haven't reached out to me do let me know but also if you guys could follow and like the podcast instagram and also hit us up on there that really helps us out then we know how many people are you know listening to us and like what they like and it just really helps so don't don't be shy like hit me up yeah hit us up on the instagram email us yeah, and if you have ideas for future segments or guests, please email us. Like we have a running list of people that we should interview. Like, uh, yeah, and, and rate, rate the podcast and provide us with feedback on uh, whichever podcasting platform you're using to listen to our show. So, on that note, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast, and you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So, gents, uh, why did the invisible man turn down a job offer? Um, I don't know, Connor. He couldn't see himself doing it. God damn it. (laughs) I'm out. Yep. Thank you. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.